0: Well, like we've been saying, we will, for the next three weeks, uh, spend some time in Advent in this passage, verses, chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, which, as you may know, is a very succinct and powerful proclamation of the person and work of Christ. Um, and what we, one of the things we see there is that Christ, uh, the Son of God, eternal, uh, all-powerful, is one person, two natures, fully God, fully man, truly God, truly man. And uh, life is is distracting, and there's ups in life, there's downs in life, times of the season or times of the year that can really grab hold of our attention and distract us. And it will be good for the next three weeks to just pause and just behold our Lord Jesus as he's presented uh, in this passage. So we'll spend our three weeks of Advent uh, in this passage here. Uh, In the words of Toby Keith... He once said this, you know, talking about you makes me smile, but every once in a while, I wanna talk about me. I wanna talk about I. I wanna talk about number one, oh my, me my. What I think, what I like, what I know, what I want, what I see. I like talking about you, 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 usually, but occasionally, I want to talk about me, 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 me. I want to talk about me, me, me. Now, that song, obviously, is, is meant to be a little bit silly and kind of uh, talking about the, the arrogance and selfishness of the other person that sometimes, you know, hey, I want, to, I want my name talked about too. Uh, but the reality is, is uh, if you're anything like me, I want that all too often. If you caught uh, what he said, I want to talk about number one. And we like that in our culture. And who's number one? But me. And we, we teach that sort of thing uh, in, to our kids from the very young age. And it's around our culture. We, we value individuality. We value independence. That's a sign of strength. And so you are number one. I am number one. And I need to look out for myself I need to make sure I am cared for, and that I get to to be the center of attention, and my needs are met, and my opinion is heard, and I am important. Now, I think we'd all probably argue there's something good in that, advocating for yourself or something, but if you're a follower of Christ, you know that there's something off about that when we inflate that, where all of a sudden I am number one, because we know that 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 is not the, the way God has made us. God has made us for community. And as we've even seen in the book of Mark, what did Jesus say true greatness is? He says, if you want to be great, that's a good pursuit, but here's what greatness is, to become a slave of everyone. Because even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. It says true greatness is to not think of yourself as number one, but to think of other people as number one. And you as last. And this passage here in Philippians, uh, Paul is really getting at the same point here. He says, that as followers of Jesus, we must pursue selflessness and humility. We must lay our lives down for the sake of other people. We are not number one. In fact, to live in line with the gospel or to, to demonstrate the gospel, to walk in the footsteps of Jesus is to lay your life down. Or to keep with the Advent theme, the incarnation not only demonstrates but also empowers selflessness in God's people. Uh, His argument actually starts up in uh, 127, if you saw what Matt read there, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel or fitting or uh, in line with the gospel. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit and one mind, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel." Paul, Paul is after unity in the church, not sameness in the sense of everybody has to agree on everything or have the same thought process, but that we are united in Christ and we love one another and we're willing to work through differences in that manner. He picks that theme back up all the way to, to chapter 2 verse 2, uh, this oneness idea, uh, when he says, Uh, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And that's something that human race longs for, is this unity of the people, of a community united. The problem is we're selfish people. I'm a selfish man. I'm an arrogant man. And when arrogance and selfishness is present and allowed to live in the community, unity dies. But when selflessness and humility live, in the community, unity thrives. And that's what Paul is after. And so first, he's going to give us the command towards selflessness and humility. Then he's going to give us the picture of it. And then he's going to demonstrate the power, where we get that kind of power. So the, the, the command actually is actually quite straightforward. So we'll work through th- verses 3 and 4. Uh, it's very clear for us what Paul wants us to pursue Verse 3, first the negative statement, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That's the negative command. Run from this. Selfishness. Selfishness, of course, is to put yourself as number one. Right? This is actually something uh, I am a professional at, and we all are professionals at. You've been a professional at this since you were two or three. You know, one of the, one, one of the first words you learn as a kid is what mine, right? You walk into a room, you see a, a group full of to- or a, a, a pile of toys. See other kids coming near it, mine. I'm not going to let them have it. This is for me, right? Or, or there's there's one piece of dessert left. Who am I thinking? Who do I gotta who do I gotta get out of the room? Because that's mine. I I'm keeping that. Now we grow older and we get more sophisticated in our mindness, but that's how we think. My extra money is Mine. I worked hard for it. My extra time is mine. It should be spent on me. If I have any extras after that, maybe other people, but it's mine. And, and even our, our words, you know, we're, as followers of Christ, we are to encourage one another, bring comfort, and we're supposed to bring correction both directions. And when we withhold them, because I'm afraid I might not say it right, or I'm afraid someone might not like me, we withhold them because we're selfish about ourselves. We care about ourselves more than other people. We are selfish. Paul says we must flee that. And second, he says we must flee conceit. Conceit is to think highly of yourself, have a high opinion of yourself. And once again, here's one uh, I've been a, a professional at for a long time. It's, it's the idea of thinking that you deserve some sort of, of preferential treatment right so when you tell a little two-year-old no or a three-year-old no when they ask for something what do they say Ah! no i'm i'm better than that nobody says no to me i get what i want because i'm important and i deserve that kind of treatment now again we grow older gets more sophisticated but nonetheless we are conceited and arrogant people. It happens in all sorts of ways. It manifests itself any sorts of way. You come into a crowd, you're ranking yourself because you want to make sure how you rank and you want to make sure you climb your way to the top. Sometimes we will want to talk to the people that we know that we're better than because it makes us feel superior and we avoid talking to someone that might outdo us intellectually or in some kind of, sort of a skill because we're, we don't want to feel inferior. Or it might go well, the opposite. We don't want to talk to the people that are beneath us. We want to talk to the people above us because maybe we'll get our foot in the door because we are that important and we want to rise to the top. It comes out of us in all sorts of ways. Sometimes we just talk too much because we think we're important. Sometimes we are afraid to talk because we don't want people to think we're foolish. Sometimes we just want to put ourselves at the center of attention, so we promote ourselves. It comes out all over the place. And Paul says we must flee that. Flee selfishness. You are not number one and flee thinking too highly of yourself. And then he flips it on the other side. What we must pursue is in humility, count others more significant than yourself. We talked about humility back in Mark. Uh, humility is, uh, I like the way C.S. Lewis talked about it, if you remember, that uh, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's actually becoming less aware of yourself because other people now are the center, right? When when we're conceited, we think highly of ourselves because we are important in the group. When we're humble, we think of ourselves less because the other people are important at that point. So it's lowering lowering ourselves. Uh, But then look what he says there, viewing other people as more significant than yourself. Now... Personally, I would I wouldn't mind if it just said think of others as significant. I could do that. <laughs> it's the moreness that makes it hard for me. I don't mind thinking that you guys are significant. It's it's hard when I go, everybody else is more significant than me. You surpass me. This word gets used throughout the book. Uh, you, uh, actually, Catherine quoted that, I think. Uh, With everything in prayer and supplications, make your uh, requests known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses understanding. It's this, this idea that your understanding is here. The peace of God will be up here. It surpasses understanding. And he says, view other people as you here and everybody else surpasses you. Now, look what he says. Who did, who did, who did think about that or like that about? He says, count others. Boy, I wish he qualified that as, you know, people that are easy to be around or people that are going to return that kind of treatment to me or people that I somehow have earned their right who have been really nice and I, and I <clears throat> truly should count them as more significant than myself. But he says others. There's no qualification here. So he says, this is, this is what the community ought to be like. <clears throat> and then this word idea, count, is important, actually, because we'll see it later in the passage. This is the idea of, of thinking. You could just translate it, think this way about other people. So it's, he's going to call us to action, but you can do the same act with two different thought patterns, right? One could be actually selfish. One could be for someone else. So, for example, you know I, I love softball. Uh, let's say there's a game on Wednesday night. I don't play in a league on Wednesday night. And I think, hey, I got an opportunity to play Wednesday night, though, because a, a team needs a guy. I got a call. Uh, Danica might not be happy about that. But let me, let me uh, I, you know, she could probably use a break. I'll make dinner tonight. I'll clean up the dishes. Let me do that for her. Now, I could do that very act in a way because, you know, it's just a random night, and I think I love my wife. She could use a break. I think she's more important than me. I'm going to serve her. Or that would be loving, thinking of her as more significant than myself. Or I can th- actually do the same action and think, I'm so important, but I know how to butter her up. Right? I'll do something nice around the house, and actually now maybe she'll let me go play. Same act. One is actually just selfish and focused on me. So Paul is saying, look, I, I'm, I'm calling for the church to act in a particular way, but not just act like it. Actually think it. Actually, I have a mindset that you look at other people and you say they are more important than me, and it will then be carried out into action, which is where he goes in verse four. He says, "Let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others." And this idea of looking is—it's like paying attention, <clears throat> pay attention to the needs, the desires of other people, and we we know how to pay attention to things quite good, actually. When your stomach growls, you pay attention to it. That's, that's some sort of an alarm to you that somehow I got to take care of my stomach, right? And some of us, uh, we don't even let it get to the growling. We watch the clock and we make sure it t- our little tummy doesn't have to growl, right? We take care of you, right? We, we pay attention to our tummy. And Paul here is saying, I want you to look out at the people in the community and you take care to look at them. They're more important than you. You make sure you care for their needs. Now, he's not saying you do anything that they want, right? And sometimes it means correction, and sometimes it means blessing in another way, right? Like, I, I want pizza and lasagna every night for dinner, but that, that wouldn't be kind to do that, that for me. So it's not like we just do anything. But we look at other people and say, what, what, is, what, is, what do they need within the community that will make them walk, help them walk in faith in the Lord? And that's what we are to be about. So in summary, we might say that the whole com- command, what he's after here, is that we have a view of ourselves that we can say, I am not number one. Nor am I number two. I'm not number three. What do we have? We have maybe 80 people in here in this room right now. I'm number 160. Because everybody else gets two slots before me. It's, it's, it's putting yourself at the back or being able to say, everybody else is more important than me. <clears throat> now, I don't know about you, but there is something beautiful of, of when we hear that. Like, there is something in us that not only longs to see that in a community, but we actually long to pursue that because we know that God has actually made us that way, and that's actually the freeing way to live. We don't want to shrink the world down to the size uh, of us. So we want it. The problem is, we don't know how to do it. Right? We struggle with selfishness. We struggle with arrogance. And actually, uh, if you Google this, if you go on Google and say, how do I grow in selflessness? I did this yesterday. And uh, what you do is you, you find a list. And the, the list kind of tells you things like this. So if you want to grow in selflessness, uh, be, be patient. Donate some items that you don't need. Volunteer your time. Let, some, let someone else be the center of attention. And I read that and I go, that's my exact problem. That doesn't help me. It tells me what I should do, what it should look like, but that doesn't actually move me towards actually being empowered to do it. And thankfully, that's not how God commands his people. Paul doesn't say, now, I want you to be selfless and humble. Good luck. He says, I want you to be selfless and humble by beholding this. Look at your Lord. And that's where he goes in verse 5 to give us first the picture and then the power. The picture, have this mind in you, verse 5, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or as you might, your footnote might there, which I think is actually a little bit better, uh, says, uh, which was also in Christ. Ha- have the mind in you, this is this mind language, think about other people, think about the community, the same way that Christ thought okay so he's going to paint an image this is how the, the the one that you worship this is how he thinks this is how he lives think this way i was going to paint the picture uh it begins in verse six who though he was in the form of god did not count equality with god a thing to be grasped but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We certainly don't have a long time to unpack this all, but notice where he starts. First, he starts in the past, before the incarnation, before Jesus took on flesh. He says he was in the form of God, and actually that's the verb there is in the present, In other words, to say that he was God, he is God, he always will be God. He always was eternal, he always was all-knowing, he always was all-powerful, he is all-powerful, and he always will be all-powerful. He can't become non-God. Christ has always been God. But, he says... Where, where is it? Oh, there it is. Uh, do not count. There's this count language. Do not. He did, he did not think equality with God, what, what he shared, the second person, the triune God, a thing to be held on to or to be grasped, but the opposite. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. There's a ton of, of ink spilled on this emptying himself language here which we can't unpack here, Uh, but just one thing to recognize is that this empty himself, it's a metaphor. And we've talked about metaphors before here, right? The metaphor is painting a picture of a reality. The metaphor itself is not the reality, right? So if I said to you, my my neighbor's dog is a monster, nobody thinks, oh man, his dog is this 10-foot tall green thing with an eyeball hanging out. Like, you you have this image of the dog. Maybe it's, he's very rude or mean. Now, I could add uh, descriptions of that metaphor right after, and it would really paint the picture clear for you. If I said, my neighbor's dog is a monster, snarling at us constantly and oftentimes chewing up a shoe. Like you have this very clear image now, exactly what I mean by monster. And this is exactly what Paul does. He gives a metaphor. He emptied himself or he poured himself out. And then he tells you exactly what he means, not by... Uh, subtracting something from himself, but actually by addition. He emptied himself or lowered himself by taking on the form of a servant, becoming human or taking on human flesh, so that he didn't lose his godness, still fully God and fully man. The emptying himself was coming from the, the one who the one being in the universe who deserves all praise and glory and honor, lowers himself to the lowest position, takes on flesh, and becomes a servant. So what, what Paul's trying to demonstrate, remember, he's after us living humbly, lowering ourselves, he says, like that, the one who lowered himself and took on human flesh and became a servant. So uh, you might think of it this way. Um, you've heard Anybody know Duncan's uh, Toy Chest? You heard of this? Um, all right, we got a couple. So this is Home Alone 2. This is my second Home Alone reference uh, in 14 years, and the other one was a couple weeks ago. So, there, You know there's actually whole, six Home Alone movies? I just found that out. That is insane that the same storyline could be going on. Anyhow, Mr. Duncan, has this toy store, uh, toy store, and Kevin is lost in New York in Home Alone 2. And he goes to this toy store and he's buying some goods or whatever, I don't forget what he's buying. And he realizes after he checks out, as he's walking away, he sees the sign on the, or this picture on the wall, that the guy who just checked him out at the cash register was Mr. Duncan himself. And of course he's shocked because a man with such power and authority and respect and reputation at the store has lowered himself so low that he's working the cash register and it just, it kind of twists your mind a little bit. Like who would do that? But that's of course a movie. Let's ramp it up a little bit. Uh, Jordy Nelson, you folks, many of you know, Jordan Nelson, right? Retired from the NFL, played for the Green Bay Packers for a number of years, made $56.9 million over the course of his career. It's a lot of money. Now if you just think of it this way, if you make $56,900 a year, it would take you 1,000 years in order to make what he made. That's incredible. If you make $100,000 a year, it would take you 569 years to make what he made. This is an astronomical amount of money. And you know where you could find Jordy Nelson in the offseason while he's playing for the Green Bay Packers? You know where you'd find him? Not in some posh, nice hotel up in New York, down in Riley, Kansas, a town less than a, hundred, or a thousand people working the farm that he grew up on. Now, I'm not talking about he's off in the bank having these nice meetings about the farm or he's running the books in the, in the den. I'm talking about out in the field with the cattle, the stinky cattle, 12 hours a day while he's playing for the Packers. And we hear that, we're like, that. that's incredible. A guy that has this much reputation, this much authority and he lowers himself like that to go worth with stinky cattle. And that's, a, that's about as, as far of a gap as we can almost imagine a human doing. But so we almost have to go to imagination to, to make it bigger. So think about the president of the United States. He says, you know, I, 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 can't, I, I, just, I can't live in this White House anymore. Too stuffy. And somehow he, he convinces the, the guards to let him buy at uh, 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 your neighbor's house. So he's living right next door to you. And not only is the president living next door to you, over the course of the, the next month, you realize this is, this is not just a publicity stunt. This is the real deal. He's there. And not only is he live there, but he's out mowing the lawn. He's shoveling in the snow. He's he shoveled my sidewalk. And you think, you're probably thinking, it's like, dude, that's totally absurd. That Like that would never happen, and it could never happen. And you're right. It is totally absurd. And it it, it doesn't even scratch the surface of what we're talking about here. We're talking about the eternal, all-powerful God, the one who sustains all things by the word of his power, the one who holds your very life in his hands right now, who gives you breath, who holds all particles floating up in the air right now. That one took on flesh and came to the sin-soaked world. Mm. I shared a story a couple of years ago about uh, when I was uh, sharing the gospel with a, a Muslim man once. We were having a wonderful conversation and we were talking about the Lord Jesus coming uh, as uh, the second person, of the triune God taking on flesh and uh, to die in our place. And, and he, he suddenly stopped in the conversation and he, he said, no, 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 no. No way. You're telling me that a holy righteous, perfect God, holy as he is, would come to a place like this, full of sin, no way. It could never happen. And I stood there and I thought, man, this guy gets it. He gets it on a level that it is so absurd that almighty God would come here and lower himself. It feels absurd. And believers, behold your Lord. Now, why would he do that? It's exactly what Paul is trying to get for us, for the sake of others. He comes and he lives a perfect life. He dies the death for his people that they deserve to die, so that they too can be, or they would be made right with God and dwell with God forever. So he's giving us the picture of what this humility that he's calling us to. Like that, he says, I want you to lay your life down like that one did, like the Lord. But this is not meant to just simply be a picture. Remember, the, the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. The gospel, when, when believers hear the good news of Jesus how Jesus cares for his people, that we are actually written in this story. The gospel actually is meant to come into us and grow us from the inside out. So the gospel is meant to actually empower us to actually pursue this life that we are called to. But our task then is to receive it, to receive the good news. I thought of it this way. Um, when I, One of my first things I oftentimes do when I'm working on a passage, I write it out by hand just to kind of slow my brain down. And then throughout the week, I'll type it out as well. well. One of those times I was typing it out, I actually missed a letter and mistyped it. So verse 7 uh, said that he emptied himself uh, by taking the form of a servant, by being uh, born in the likeness of men, but I forgot the N in men. And I didn't catch it. <clears throat> and I you know, went about studying the passage and I came back and I read it And uh, suddenly, I saw there, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant by being born in the likeness of me, and I thought, oh, oh, God took, like, became like me, like a human like me, like with fingers and toes and, and was in a manger himself. It was, it was a baby. He, he had to learn how to talk. He had to learn how to, how to walk and read. When he, when he fell, it hurt his knee. The Lord be, took on the likeness of me so that he could resent, represent me. And for all who worship Christ, that, that you could say that of yourself. The Lord took on the likeness of you so that he could represent you in his death and bring you back to the Father so that you could be set free for the penalty that you deserve this is the good news of the gospel. So what Paul then is trying to do is saying, look, first we must receive it. Receive the good news of the humility of Christ, the selflessness of Christ on your behalf so that you can now turn around and offer that same selflessness to one another. Broken as we are, we are then empowered towards walking in the command. So then... As we hear this command, brothers and sisters, this is not a command that says, as followers of Jesus, we must be humble. In the gospel, this is a message that says, as followers of Christ, we can pursue humility because the power of Christ is upon us and working in us. And with that, we move towards uh, the Lord's Supper. And we recognize that uh, Christ, has, in his selflessness, has paid the penalty for our sin, and He's also inaugurated a new covenant by which we have power to walk in the command that He has given to us. So, if you're a follower. Of-